Welcome to the Horsewise Podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, I talk about how horses don't care about your politics or religious views and why that's such a good thing. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. I'm Lynn Reardon, the host of the podcast and head coach at Horsewise. Today, I'd like to talk to you about something I see happening quite a lot in the horse world. And it's something that over time tends to have a very negative effect on horses and on the person too. And what this has to do with is how so many times when we have horses, they mean so much to us, right? We love them. They, they bring up a lot of emotion in us. Uh, I know very few people who own horses who are sort of indifferent to them. Like, oh, I could ride my horse today or I could ride my four-wheeler. It's a very passionate uh, undertaking, having a horse and riding it regularly and, and kind of being devoted to progress together. Because of the amount of emotion that a horse can bring up or anything really that's important in your life, right? Something that you're so, again, passionate about or value so highly that you put it at the middle of your life. Those emotions that can come up around that aren't always objective, right? Uh, Emotions by default don't tend to be very objective. And the phenomenon that I'm talking about is where a person who owns a horse will in some ways let's say, project onto them all of their worldview, all of their emotions in general, their political beliefs, how they think the world works in general. And the difficulty with this is that it often has very little to do with what that horse really needs or what that horse personality is really like. And it does a huge disservice to the horse. Horses in general, they don't care about your politics. They don't care about your religious views or who you voted for in the last election or what your theory is about how the universe works. What they care about and what they respond to is your presence and your actions right now and in the moment. And anything else that we bring to the table in terms of how we choose to see the world and therefore choose to see our horse those things tend to just get in the way, honestly. And, uh, and again, we don't often realize that we're doing this. Um, but one of the key signals is that when a horse then doesn't perhaps behave in a way that correlates to whatever those premises are that you've had about the horse. Uh, let's say that you are a devout Buddhist. So you project onto your horse all of the attributes of what a good Buddhist monk should be. And your horse, of course, who has no idea about Buddhism or monks or anything and really just wants you to kind of help it through a problem or maybe it feels a little anxiety, doesn't react like a good Buddhist monk. Well, what a lot of people would do in that moment is they would blame the horse. They wouldn't go, hey, wait a minute, maybe this whole Buddhist monk correlation thing isn't quite right. Maybe I need to reevaluate it. Instead, they would tend to go either this horse is, you know, not the right kind of horse or, or they might blame people who come to them and say, hey, you might want to actually just try, you know, leading your horse with quality or perhaps riding your horse more consistently. They're like, no, no, that's wrong. This is all about my Buddhist principles. So I'm exaggerating here. I actually don't know anybody who treats their horse like Buddhist monks, but just to be humorous, you know, I'm trying to make it a little more extreme. The thing that can be so uh, uncomfortable for people is that the horse essentially 
reflects back reality at all times. The horse is reality, if that makes sense. The horse doesn't come into this world like we do sometimes with an, an innate ability to sort of rationalize and sort of create our own worldview and our own cognitive maps. The horse is what it is. And so that is why horses are so honest. They reflect back what the true nature of reality is. And whether or not you choose to accept that or not is what really determines you know, your growth in horsemanship, but also kind of your growth in your character as both a horse owner and, and as a person in general. What I do at Horsewise is I help people kind of see the reality of what their horse is offering to them, how to interpret the information, the behavior of the horse, and also how to identify the patterns that they and the horse have gotten in together as a team, both physical patterns as well as behavioral patterns. The detection of those patterns and then the ultimate changing of them for the better comes with a detached perspective, detached from emotionality, and also maybe detached from investment in certain worldviews, again, that might be interfering with the person's ability to really, as I say, recognize these patterns and, and figure out ways to adjust them. And not all patterns are negative. There's just patterns that may be more likely to produce the results that you want, that are maybe more positive for the horse, um, and also patterns that are you know, needing to be changed dramatically. Let's say in the case of safety issues or where the horse is really sort of deteriorating to a point where more extreme changes are needed quickly. Fortunately, that is often a pretty rare situation, at least in my experience. Um, my job is to sort of help you head those off at the pass and also do it in a way where you feel good about it, where it's a humorous thing, ideally. If I'm doing my job right, you, you're learning and you're laughing at the same time, but also that where you feel like you can actually understand these patterns and then change them yourself without needing to constantly talk to a coach like me every second of the day. So because of my work, this is why I'm so familiar with this phenomena of people, again, kind of projecting sort of their emotions, their worldview, their political, religious, spiritual beliefs onto the horse who's, you know, just kind of standing there in the pasture doing its thing, being a representation of reality. And therefore, that's where misunderstandings and miscommunications can happen. Now, I have lots of stories about horses and their owners and how maybe the, you know, again, extreme adherence to a certain worldview or outlook really interfered with the relationship between the horse and the person. And again, was often not at all in the horse's best interest. But sometimes when I relate stories of horses and people, I feel like maybe some of my listeners get a little defensive, not, not, not to blame you for that, but just to say where you go, well, that wouldn't be me and my horse. Or again, if you own horses, maybe this sort of uh, phenomenon that I'm describing might not be as easy for you to see as it would in a different situation. So in the interest of, first of all, illustrating this principle in a way that's especially fun, but also maybe removing a little bit of the blind spots that might come up if I start describing a horse that sounds like your friend's horse or whatever, I'm going to illustrate this by talking about a wonderful woman and her dog, Bella. Alice was this incredibly just you would have loved her kind of person. She was much older. She lived in New England and she had all of her life lived alone, really from the time of being a young adult onward. And she was extremely independent. You know, she loved to garden. She loved to walk. She studied biology. She was a very successful teacher and she retired fairly young and just had a wonderful life. 
One of the biggest mainstays of her life was that she always had a faithful dog. This dog was always by her side. And over the years, it had been the same type of dog. It had been a female Irish setter, a purebred Irish setter. Alice had grown up with these dogs. They were a big part of her childhood. And, and for her, they were the loyal and best companions. And I met several of her Irish setter dogs over the decades. And they were all just very sweet, very, I would say, almost refined dogs, very gentle and kind. Again, all female, all very, uh, really ladylike and just an ideal companion for Alice. And then, you know, as over time, each of those, those wonderful dogs would pass away after many happy years with, with Alice. So this had happened recently, and she went to a breeder of Irish setters, which, you know, as the times had changed more and more, you were seeing people were getting rescue dogs or pound dogs or mixed breed dogs. So some of the ability to find a purebred Irish setter, that was getting sort of narrower, right? And so, but Alice found a good breeder, very reputable breeder. They bred primarily show dogs. And she went and talked with this breeder and went, they just had a litter, very good litter of puppies from two of their best dogs. And Alice went to go visit the puppies and you know, potentially select one. Now there was a little bit of pressure because there aren't again as many purebred Irish setters in her area, again, difficult to find. So you could say that Alice was going pre-wired to select, right? And in the litter, there were two puppies left that had not already been spoken for. One was a male and one was a female. And the female was a very attractive, you know, young puppy, but she already had, she had some minor defect. I can't quite remember what it was. It might've been an overbite or an underbite, something that would not in any way affect her, but was enough to keep her from being a show dog. You know, show dogs have to have perfect confirmation. And then the male puppy, I think he was a little small. I think that was the reason why he would not have been, you know, considered desirable as a show dog. Even at that young age, I guess, they can determine these things. So those were the two puppies to choose from. And the male dog was very kind of shy and sweet and gentle and a little bit, maybe not quite the runt of the litter, but still had those kind of qualities. He was not maybe as bold or as venturous. And the female, again, very attractive, cute female, she was rambunctious. She was kind of all over the place and she kind of tumbled into Alice's lap and, you know, was, you know, playing with her shoes and very different personality than Alice's other dogs. But again, female, purebred Irish setter. And Alice was like, that's, that's the puppy for me. And the breeder said, are you sure you don't want to consider the male? You know, he is a little bit, you know, kind of more shy. You said you like that. And Alice was like, no, it's female all the way for me. I want the female. So she bought the dog. She named the puppy Bella. And from the start, again, this puppy was so incredibly appealing. I met Bella several times and she was just, I mean, she's one of those puppies you just want to immediately pet, but she also was a handful. You could tell from the start, you know, she was a little bit of a ruffian, right? She really wanted to, she had a very strong kind of independent streak, a very strong personality. And from the start, Alice had a little difficulty persuading Bella to stay at her side, which had never been a problem with her other Irish setter dogs over the years, but Bella definitely had a mind of her own. Now, as time passed, it became more and more apparent that Bella had an extremely strong hunting instinct. And again, if you look back to sort of the origin of the Irish setter as a breed, they were originally bred for hunting purposes. That 
that was why they first were, in a sense, developed by people was to become hunting companions, very specific type of hunting. Over time, you know, as people's interests changed and so forth, the Irish setter breeding industry, at least in Alice's area, you know, small as it was, was geared more towards show dogs. So primarily confirmation, the appearance of the dog, you know, the, um, the health of the dog, all these things were what was being bred for, not so much the strong hunting instinct, which originally back in the day, when you would breed Irish center setters, you would breed them for that purpose. Primarily, you didn't care if they didn't have a perfect, again, physique, as long as they had that strong hunting instinct, that was the sign of a successful breeding operation you know, back in the day. So Bella was kind of a throwback, I guess, to these earlier genetic origins. And she really, from the start, wanted to hunt. And she had all of those great characteristics of a top quality hunting dog. You know, she was, again, extremely independent, extremely oriented towards scent. She would want to chase things down. She was, uh, again, playful, but she also had somewhat of, I would say, a dominant personality. I don't know if that's exactly how they think about it in, in the dog world, the breeding world, but she was a dog that wanted to kind of go after things, not attack them, but she had, again, this very single-minded pursuit. She had no recall. Uh, Alice had trained many, many puppies at this point, and Bella by far was the most resistant to the concept of recall, where she would come back when called, essentially. She would just go f- for hours and hours. Um, Alice liked to walk near uh, you know, small uh, coves and waterways in her area. And in the past, again, with previous dogs and puppies, she'd always been able to train them to recall, to come back to her. And Bella would just take off forever. She'd go into the water. You know, Alice couldn't get her out. It was this whole thing. And it was becoming kind of more and more of a problem. Several people spoke to Alice and said, hey, you know, it seems like Bella actually might be a dog that needs to have maybe even a hunting job. I mean, she's she's a great dog, but she's not maybe falling into what you were expecting for your lifestyle. You know, at this point, Alice is, she's an older lady. She's extremely active, but chasing around a now large and very active six-month-old puppy into the waterways of her local neighborhood wasn't exactly what Alice had in mind. In fact, it was the exact opposite of what Alice had in mind, and not just because of her age or her maybe less than perfect athleticism. Alice was very adamantly anti-hunting. This was something that she believed very passionately in, and I can certainly understand that. I know a lot of hunters who are very responsible hunters, and I I respect them and I appreciate their perspective. But for me personally, I I just couldn't, I just couldn't kill an animal for pleasure. It's just, just not who I am. And Alice took it to the next level. I mean, she was, I would say, politically activist on the score, as a lot of people are who feel passionate about animals. And she was like, I would never allow my dog to become a hunting dog. And in fact, she ascribed Bella's behavior to other things. She felt that Bella just needed more support and structure. And so she started to do that by her standards, by Alice's standards. So she took her to obedience school, which Bella flunked out of <laughs> pretty violently. Um, she would she would behave as long as there wasn't anything that, again, would sort of set off the, the hunter instinct in her. And then she would kind of lose it. Uh, Alice really wanted Bella to heal, to stay close to her at all times. And so she began using a variety of what were, they were, they were humane, you know, leash restraints, but they didn't work on Bella. So slowly, steadily, incrementally, 
Alice had to start using more and more sort of, you know, restrictive types of leash devices, collar devices on Bella to keep her close. Well, this didn't work so well for Bella. Again, the hunting instinct, she's, she's sort of born to run, so to speak, born to go find things, born to be independent, chase things down. And so what started to happen is that part of Bella's personality, which was a good part of her personality, it was who she was, it was what she'd kind of come into the world with, that started to get sort of subverted, right? She had no outlet for it. So then kind of predictably, that began to distort. Those traits in Bella started to distort and she became hyper, hyperactive around other dogs because this was, again, an only outlet for her in terms of play was now when she saw another dog, she would lunge for them. She would kind of drag Alice along with her no matter what the leash restraint was. And sometimes she would get into fights. She would be so sort of, again, hyperactive and overly, overly play- uh, what's the word I'm looking for, constrained, that would all come tumbling out and the other dogs would perceive it as aggressive and then it would become aggressive as the other dogs would maybe feel a little threatened by her way over exuberant social awkwardness. They would get tense and then Bella would double down and she would start, she would start becoming more aggressive herself. So there were several incidents where Alice got bitten by Bella, not Bella coming after her, but just in trying to stop Bella from interacting with another dog and in frustration, Bella would turn and nip at her. And this started to become, again, more and more of a problem, as you can imagine. All throughout this process, friends, family are talking to Alice, again, suggesting, hey, this is nothing to do you know, with you, you're a great owner, but clearly Bella, maybe she needs something else. She needs a different approach or she might need a different kind of home. And again, Alice doubled down. She's like, no, I don't believe that's true. I'm going to keep working on this. I know that I can change my dog. I know that there is an outlet for her. She doesn't have to be a hunting dog. I don't believe in hunting. I think it's an evil thing. And so she continued. And over the years, this got worse and worse. It got to the point where she had bitten Alice so many times. Again, the dog isn't trying to attack her per se, but these situations keep developing where Alice essentially can't control her because Bella is so strong. Bella gets enough away or drags Alice close enough to another dog that some kind of a fracas ensues. And then in trying to restrain her or pull her away, uh, Alice gets bitten. So it had gotten to the point where she'd been bitten so many times that animal control was basically watching them. And in the state where she lived, there was a rule if a dog had, you know, bitten someone more than X amount of times, they would confiscate the dog. And the dog most likely was at risk for being euthanized. It was seen as a public safety law. Now, at this point, you would think that Alice, again, this is a Alice was a wonderful person, so I'm not trying to paint her as somebody who was stupid or blind or doing all the wrong things, but she was really, really committed to her perspective and viewpoint of the situation. And because of that, and because of her maybe ability to to focus and spend so much time trying to address the issues with Bella and also in her mind trying to, quote, fix Bella, it continued to snowball from there. So again, the leash restraint started to get, you know, more and more intense. I mean, to the point where you could say they were harsh if you didn't understand the context of the situation and how critical the need was for safety. One more bite and Bella could be essentially on death row, so to speak. So then what Alice turned to was medication. So 
Bella had become, again, so unmanageable that she turned to sort of veterinary pharmaceutical intervention. And at one point, I believe Bella was on, I think, two different types of mood medication, forms of puppy Prozac, as they call them. And again, she was under more and more kind of physical constraint in her ability to be walked and whatnot. And the two of them kind of came to an impasse, you know, get Alice loved Bella. That's what she told all of us. And I believe she did, but it also started to become a little bit of an entrenchment, right? She could not allow for any other option or any other shift in her worldview that might say this dog might need something different because that something different would be something that she felt was morally wrong, right? Hunting is morally wrong. But then that even started to become, what if she just had a, a home that was more outdoorsy or where she could run, not someone necessarily who would be a hunter? And Alice was more like, well, but that wouldn't bring out the best she felt in Bella. She felt like what really needed to happen was that Bella needed to change. So finally, over time, Bella became so medicated and basically, I would say, depressed to some extent, that she slowly dropped a great deal of those aggressive behaviors. And she also lost a little bit of that, quite a lot actually, of that spark, that thing that made Bella who she was. She got heavy, she gained a lot of weight, and she got slower because of that. And Alice said that she was happy about that. She said that it, it was great that Bella was you know, quieter and calmer. But I think on some level, Alice knew that it had come at a great price to Bella. Bella developed cancer at a very early age, something that had not been clear in the genetics or had shown up in previous litters from the breeder. It's the kind of thing that breeders really look for, right? Because a history of cancer in puppies does not do well for the breeding program. So they do tend to look for that genetically. So this appeared to be an anomaly. And she died at a very young age, I think about seven years old, because of inoperable cancer. And uh, we all wondered, those of us who had sort of seen the situation from afar, we all wondered if some of that was partially due to just the dog immune system being so frustrated. Now, again, this is not in any way an indictment of Alice. She was probably the best dog owner I've ever met in my life. She was devoted to her dogs. And her, her worldview, her politics, if you want to call it that, but I, I really think it was more just of a, of a moral ethical stance, a lot of people would agree with that about hunting. And in wanting the best for her dog, I think she mixed that up with what she felt would be best for any dog based on her sort of worldview. And, and in this case, it just was the wrong thing. And the way that I know that, the reason I say that with such confidence is certainly not because Alice ever discussed it with me, you know, how she'd maybe changed her mind on things. But after Bella had died, of course, now she needed another dog. And do you know, she selected a dog that was not an Irish setter, that was a male, that was very sweet and shy and completely the opposite of Bella. So how do we know when we are being overly fixated or entrenched in a worldview that really isn't serving our horse or our dog in the case of Bella and Alice? And when are we sticking to a good principle, a principle that is important to maintain that represents a key value in the world to us and that serves the horse or the dog in our life. For me, what has worked best is to always keep as the overarching principle, at least in my work with horses and horsemanship, is am I doing what is benefiting the horse 
what is the horse's behavior telling me? What is the horse's demeanor telling me? Is the horse responding well to the approach that I have, whether it's with a specific horsemanship technique, how the horse is being kept, you know, is it in turnout? Is it in a stall, the kind of job that it has? And just really doing my best to maintain kind of what I call the CSI mindset, where I see that objectively, not through the prism of, well, this is how I always do things, or I should always be the one that has the right answer for this horse. You know, sometimes as a professional, what has happened is that I've looked at a horse, I've been working with the horse, and I've recognized that that horse might need a different type of person or a different type of approach. And I've learned not to take that personally, but to recognize it as, hey, this horse needs a specific kind of dance partner. Maybe this horse really wants to do eventing. And I love this horse and I want this horse for myself, but I'm never going to do eventing. I, I'm kind of more of a Western and dressage kind of person. And it's also just kind of what I'm good at. So I wouldn't want to hold that horse back, right? So I would let that horse go to someone else rather than doubling down and saying this horse has to do what I want it to do. So these are the things that, uh, again, it can be really, it sounds so easy when it's not you. Like, oh, I would never like medicate my dog because it's not behaving the way I want it to. You know, you might, under the right set of circumstances, do that. And it's important to sort of look at what will you hold on to so tightly that you would be unwilling to let go of. Again, besides safety, like no one's saying, hey, you know, the answer is, is that you should slaughter your horse. You know, that's never the, the, the scenario. But I'm just talking about what would be the things that would be really difficult for you to let go of. It's an important question because a lot of times the answer to that question will be at the bottom of longstanding problems or frustrations that you are having with your horse. And only you can change that. You know, the horses are dependent on us. They don't have choice in the matter. So when we bring a lot of bias or political perspective or religious views or you know, again, spiritual views, whatever it is, and we overlay that on the horse, it is really sometimes can be a real lapse in stewardship. So I would just urge my listeners to kind of keep Bella and Alice in mind and recognize that it doesn't have to be as an extreme a situation as theirs was for there still to be sort of detrimental things going on for your horse and for you. The solution always lies in being as neutral and objective as possible as you can be, just in sort of quieting those emotions or that, you know, that first sort of push of resistance that you might have to something that's a new idea or a different way of looking at your horse. I think the best way to kind of highlight that is to to discuss what the nature is of subjectivism, which is the opposite of objectiveness. And subjectivism, by definition, is a doctrine that knowledge is merely subjective and that there is no external or objective truth. In other words, we can kind of make it up as we go along. And that goes back to my original point that the horse really is the truth. The horse really is sort of reality being mirrored back to you. So please do your best to enjoy your horse and love your horse, but without falling into the trap of subjectivism, where you sort of overlay a false interpretation of what the horse is really trying to tell you. If you're stuck in patterns with your horse and you'd like a set of non-subjective eyes to review them, please check out my online coaching at horsewisecoach.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.